Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arseblog.com. Hope you're well. What a great show we have for you today. Well, yeah, I would say that, but I think it is probably a great show. It hasn't happened yet. This is the very first thing, but it, it has the potential to be a good show. I said great at the start. I'm going down already. Good. It's probably going to be an, an adequate listen, uh, a so-so aural experience. I mean, it won't be the worst thing. You've ever heard. Probably. But we do have two guests. Two guests of various stripes talking about Arsenal in, in different ways. That's good. And we've got a competition for you. Books. We've got those to give away uh, to lucky listeners. As well as that, we'll be uh, discussing all the things that have happened between well, the last time we spoke and now looking ahead to the Manchester City game and then everything else in between. So, yeah, there's the potential for it to go wrong somewhere between now and the end, but chances are it'll be it'll be absolutely functional. So there. Uh, I do think the first thing we should do, though, is, is uh, bask in the end of this particular interlull. Now, as you know, interlulls in general aren't the most enjoyable experiences because, A, there's no Arsenal. Um, there's international football, which uh, doesn't do a whole lot for me. you got to look at people like Robbie Keane, etc., etc. And, you know, the interlull can send people a little bit stir-crazy, a bit doolally at times. And I think that's very true of this particular interlull. Because we had the end of the transfer deadline day, then an interlull, and pretty much nothing in between. And I think the end of this interlull should be celebrated like a birthday or a, or a triumph or, or going all the way through Abe's Odyssey without losing a life. <laughs> it has been a conspiracy theory heavy interlull. It has. I think if you look up the, the biggest conspiracy theories in the world, you'll find out that JFK was killed by John Lennon and the moon landings took place on a soundstage somewhere outside Mullingar and the MMR vaccine doesn't just give your kids autism, it makes them paparazzi who drive in tunnels in Paris and kill princesses. That's the level of conspiracy that we've been dealing with this week. All to do, of course, with Danny Welbeck and Arsene Wenger. And this concept that Arsene Wenger might not have been the one that signed Danny Welbeck. As if anybody else at Arsenal Football Club is in charge of football and transfers and can do anything without his permission. But no, Arsene Wenger didn't sign him. In actual fact, it was... Nelson Vivas! <clears throat> Sorry, I mean Ivan Gazidis. And this all stemmed from the fact that uh, Arsene Wenger didn't say anything after signing him. Because normally when this is signing, we, we did all this in the Arsecast Extra on Monday, but it, it lived on through the week that Arsene Wenger, the football dictator that he is, the man who controls everything, from the colour of the training ground walls to what the players eat to the labelling on their underpants, which is true story. Not many people know that one. I'll tell you that a different day. But uh, that all of a sudden he could be emasculated by Ivan Gazidis and a player could be brought in without his knowledge. And then when it became obvious that that scenario was pretty ludicrous and a bit thick, then the goalpost changed. It was like, not why... Did Ivan Gazidis sign this player? But why hasn't Arsene Wenger said anything about him? 
he was away and he was another club and did it really matter? He's spoken about him now in his press conference. Um, that happened yesterday. And all of a sudden people were going, well, he only wanted him on loan. But what he actually said was, at the start, the player was only available on loan. But then when the thing changed and he became available on a permanent basis, I had no hesitation in, in signing him. And th- this goes back to the Arscast Extra on Monday. Uh, Arsene Wenger's comments uh, in his press conference about how the deal might not have happened if he wasn't, uh, wasn't travelling that day. He travelled to Rome with one of the agents that the club got in to broker the deal. And, and this is what James uh, from Gunnerblog had to say about it on the Arscast Extra on Monday. Basically, the way this deal went down, Danny Welbeck is represented by his his brother. He acts as his agent, Chris Welbeck. Um, and I think Arsenal, in order to do this deal and not just be dealing directly with the Welbeck family, brought another uh, agency on board in order to you know help manage the negotiations. Um, and actually, I know for a fact that Arsene Wenger himself made a call at about half past seven in the morning to that agency to express his uh, sort of urgent desire to push this deal through on deadline day. So he was directly involved in the negotiations and actually representatives of the agency uh, were with him in that infamous uh, airport picture, uh, which, (laughs) which came out around midday. So that could be relevant or not, but effectively his hand is, was, firmly involved in, in this transfer uh, there's no way that he would ever have let it happen without his consent and it happened albeit late in the day at his behest so essentially the man who is in charge of deciding what players to buy and whether or not the club should buy them decided to buy a player and the club bought him I know it's frankly unbelievable to me I just I just can't get my head around that at all it's just such a complicated thing that um I don't know, we, we probably need somebody to explain it to us in greater detail. But I think it's just a consequence of this particular interlull that all this has, has gone down. And when there's no arsenal to talk about, people, well, they'll go off in tangents, and sometimes those tangents are good and amusing, and other times they're just kind of dense. I think this was uh, one of those times. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that even though it happened late in the day, Arsene Wenger decided that he would buy Danny Welbeck and and that's what he did. And now we've got Danny Welbeck and that's all we should be getting on with, really. Before we go on with the show, I just want to say thank you to this week's sponsors, the Illuminati. For all your secretly controlling the world needs, uh, why don't you check out their website uh, and stuff? So thank you indeed to the Illuminati. I wonder if the Illuminati can get the Arsenal PR machine to arrange lunches with Ivan Gazidis. I'm just asking for a friend. Anyway, I think we should probably leave that to one side and put it to bed and, and let's just get on with, with stuff. We'll have a look ahead uh, to the Man City game and all the team news that's come in. We have come through the interlull relatively well. One or two little worries, but we'll touch on those a little bit later on. But now, time to welcome our first guest to the show. It is Julian H. from Gingers for Limpar. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. I want to just ask, firstly, what you made of the opening month of the season. Obviously, we're we're beyond the first interlull now, but the first month or the first couple of weeks of the season were a little bit challenging. Were you expecting that? And, and what's your overall assessment of how we did in that time? I'm not really sure what I was expecting. Um, I'm always, I think, a bit, a bit nervous at the beginning of the season. You've got, you know, the um, irrational optimist in the back of your head. You can't kind of wait for it to start, and, and every fixture suddenly becomes winnable. And you know, I think we thought every game up until um, the one tomorrow was is is winnable. Um, but and of course that one as well, especially being at home. But of course it hasn't worked out like that. Um, I mean, I, I would. So disappointing. I can't. Um, I can't put it any other way. I um, would that be because simply, of the level of performance, or because of maybe what happened at Leicester more than anything, or just in mm. general the the way the team hasn't quite clicked. 
I think, yeah, I think the, the latter, the overall performances, um, the results haven't, haven't been too bad, really, and got through the, the European Cup tie, which, which, which is the most important thing when you look back at previous seasons, you know, it does, um, you, you realise how important that, that is compared to other games at the beginning of the season, such as the start of last season, where, of course, was, which was calamitous, and yet we bounced back quite strongly. Um, but other than that, it's, it's strange, because, you know, we've, in recent seasons, Seasons, um, the the sort of weakness in personnel, if you like, has been has been so obvious. Um, and when we started the season, thinking, oh, you know, we can't challenge. You look at the squad; it's not good enough. We've kind of come a bit used to that, and it's been very obvious where to put the blame. Um, and there have you know, there have typically been you know two or three scapegoats, if not more, in the side. And you can say, well, that, that's just that. Whereas you know, this season we do have a very good squad. Um, I, I know there's there was more we could have done um, in this transfer window and the one before it, and arguably the one before that. But essentially, we've got um, we've got I, th- I think a stronger squad on paper than we've had for for an extremely long time. And yet, as you said, it's just the um, you know as, as we all know when you're when you're old like um, like us, <laughs> that it's, it's not it's not it's not that simple. It's often you know the teams that look better on paper don't perform. Um, as well and it's that kind of blending um i was watching the um the game if you'll forgive me um up the road that happened just before the international break and and you looked at the, the team sheets the tottenham lineup yeah. um and the liverpool lineup and it doesn't didn't look that different in quality and yet i mean for me liverpool just just on a, on a different level um, to, to to the home side, and it's it's that it, it's you know it is um, it's it's Wenger's challenge now. I think one thing he's he's spent he's been so vocal over the summer, and he, he you know his spin is very much I was restrained by money, and there was nothing else I could do, and now we've got the money. And the problem with that is, of course, it, is, it kind of you know makes a rod for his own back, and and he's he's it kind of isn't that excuse now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's up to him to, to show that he can make these players uh, blend. Yeah, I mean, it raises expectations also, of course, when you go out and you buy players like Mesut Ozil and Alexis and you spend big, big money mm-hmm. on those. Interesting in the sense that at the end of last season, he identified the area where the team really needed to improve as the goal-scoring part of, of things, where Manchester City scored 100 mm-hmm. goals, Arsenal scored 66 and we all, I think, have our reservations about the depth at the back. Um, and I think the, those are le- legitimate concerns. But it looks like what he's done is is really try and top load this side. If you look at the additions to the squad, uh, Welbeck, which we can touch on overall in, in a couple of minutes' time. Welbeck's come in. Uh, Joel Campbell is there to add a bit of depth to the squad. Alexis has come in. And then you've got around them, Cazorla, you've got Oxlade-Chamberlain, you've got Theo Walcott to come back. Giroud, we know, is there, but injured. Um, it does look as if that he's really made a concerted effort to to boost the options in that area of the, area of the pitch. Yeah, I mean, when when he said um, before Welbeck signed, he, he says um, his, we have too many forwards line, which almost seemed designed to, to send some people um, slipping out. But it's it's. I mean, I, I, in a way, I think that's true. I think a, a lot of um, a lot of the reservations some of us have there are not about the number of forwards. It's, it's more about who those forwards are, and, sure. and and also sort of how much faith he has in them. Um, I mean, of course, you, you never really know with him but you can sense things in terms of, of where he plays players and when he plays them and how often he plays them or how often he doesn't. And then also just little subtle things about, about, about when, he's, when he's speaking about players. Um, can't, can't, I mean, he's always, of course, generally positive. But mm. So I think for, for, for players where he's not so keen on, he doesn't get as kind of passionate about defending them. Um, as, as he, for example, with, with Ursil, he gets, he gets very passionate and he goes into a lot of 
detail about what Ursula's doing and, and what people are missing and stuff. And you certainly don't get that with, with I think, with players like Podolsky and, and, and even Joel Campbell. You get slightly fainter praise, um, to say the least. Yeah. And, and um, personally, I'm not convinced he, he's convinced by either of those two players. I'd agree, um, yeah. he's, He's certainly convinced by Sonogo. Um but the, the question is, is whether that's going to become justified and uh, um, and prove a lot of people wrong, or, or whether it's going to come back to hit him in the face. But as you see, yeah, the, the numbers, the numbers are, are definitely there. He's clearly front loaded it. Um, it's interesting again, though. It comes down to, to can, yeah, how how can the team uh, create chance, create more chances, and become just more of a kind of naturally goal scoring team? And that's not just down, of course, to having lots of forwards. That, that's that's to them. Um, Again, just to use that word, you know, blending and, and cutting through in the final third. And I think come, to come back to your original question, that's one of the disappointments of the first few games of the season is we just haven't seen that that cutting edge creativity in in the final thirds that I think we'd like to see. Mm. Do you think that's one of the big challenges that he's got now to to try and figure out how to get Ozil, Cazorla, Alexis, Welbeck, Walcott? Mm these players into the team and maintain the balance from an attacking point of view? I mean, do you worry that there's a lack of creativity or just that the the balance isn't quite right enough for things to click? Um, I I think it's just in terms of we haven't sort of found... um, the, the system, you know, it's. I, I mean, I think I think with with, with Wenger as well. Like he uh, he he generally f- fixes on an idea and sticks to it, and then and then just tries it again and again. And and, and in fairness, often it, this this creates sort of partnerships between players that mm. do blossom, um, even if it's really unexpected ones, like like Song and and, and the Stapleton bloke who, who went off. <laughs> it's it's you know it's. This and, and I mean, one thing I think we will see this season. Hopefully, I'm wrong, but I think with the number of attacking players we have, um, it, he, he's not going to suddenly become, a, I think, a great squad manager and, and have them coming in and out and you know adjusting to tactics and stuff. I, I think he will try to find uh, a, a combination of those attacking players which which works or which he thinks will work, and I think a lot of them will end up just sitting on the bench basically if that um but it's i don't i don't know it's it's tough because of course he's changed to this 4-3-3 as well which is a bit different to last season and it's it's funny because as you say he you know he he knows that we have to improve the goal scoring yet at the same time in a way this has made us even a bit more kind of cautious and a bit more midfieldy if that's kind of (laughs) um a, a word and i think that's i mean against everton for example i thought a lot of our midfield play was that it was actually very very good um and I, I thought we controlled that quite well but it was the final third again and then of course a couple of defensive mistakes but um but we'll have to see i, I think that is his challenge it's a nice problem to have as a manager when you think of the problems he had you know with yeah. the squad three years ago and four years ago it's a nice problem to have a lot of attacking talent and to have a question of how do you uh, how do you merge them? I'd expect, as I said, just two or three to sort of come through and develop a good understanding. Players, that, in my opinion, like like uh, Walcott, Ursul, Sanchez, and I can see some of the others just kind of really being squeezed out for a lot of the season. Mm. Danny Welbeck's arrived from Manchester United. What, what did you make of the signing um, overall? I mean, in the circumstances. It, it seemed more and more sensible and rational, um, given that Sonogo had struggled so uh, so badly at at Leicester, and he wasn't alone in that. But he, you know, has become after only seventeen games something of a lightning rod for for criticism. And I don't think that's um, not that it's not fair, but you can understand it when when people are looking for Arsenal to to challenge and they want to see a better striker than Yaya Sonogo. And I think in in Welbeck, we've got a better striker than than Yaya Sonogo. I mean, is is he the kind of player who can bring out the best of of Mesut Ozil? Because we've spoken about how he lacked players with pace and players to make those runs and and with Walcott in the team, with Alexis in the team. They're now, um, when those guys are fit, is almost an emphasis on pace, whereas before it seemed to be something of an afterthought. With Walcott out of the team, all of Arsenal's pace was gone. 
And now mm. we have not one, not two, but three options when those guys are all fit and ready, which which should change the way that we look to attack. Yeah, you certainly hope so. And I, I think the I think it's great that we've we've got faster players now. But I always think with um, with this question, it's it's, it's not just a matter of sort of pure pace if you like kind of run below sprint challenge kind of thing it's, it's also about kind of movement and, and, and sort of guile and being also psychologically being prepared to, to run past players so some players just it's just not their game uh, I mean Kizola for example is, you know it's, it's you've, you've got the players who, who will who instinctively come deep and look to you know keep the ball um, and, and then maybe create and then and then those like Ramsey for example, who, who is often deep um, and of course he's fast but he's not you know, Theo Walcott fast yet he, he often gets in those positions and, and runs beyond players um, and, and I think Welbeck will um, improve that I mean one of the things I, I, I like Welbeck I wanted us to sign him I'm, I'm, on, I'm on that side um, and one of the things that, that I, I liked about watching him for Man United was his his intelligence, I think, and, and his, his movement was often very good. Of course, you're never uh, you're never entirely sure it, how much that's the manager and how much it's the player. Like I, I thought under Ferguson, his uh, well, Welbeck was used very very cleverly. Often, I remember when they played away at Real Madrid, and it, and it was it's a tactical decision. And, and Welbeck, I thought, was was brilliant that night. And um, and not so much last season under Moyes, perhaps. So maybe that says everything. So, so I mean, perhaps that is that is again we're coming back to to Wenger's challenge. Like, can he can he deliver that side of Welbeck where um, where you see you see the pace and also the kind of the confidence to to get into good positions and get past players, uh, and then also um, to finish the chances. Um, I mean, Sonogo to come out that has had uh, some chances in, in, in recent recent games and sometimes his movement has got him in those positions the one-on-one against um, Leicester for example where he made a good run um, but just didn't have um, the, the, the the composure or ability or whatever we're saying it is to, to finish so um, so yeah hopefully we will and hopefully maybe it will take a bit of the burden off Sonogo, um, like you say. I mean, I didn't go uh, to Leicester. I watched it in a uh, well-known pub near the ground, and and I have to like, it's, I don't know. There were lots of groans about Sonogo, um, and I mean, I, I'm by no means his biggest fan whatsoever. Um, but it, it's, I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen too much because, yeah, as, as we know, it's, you, you can potentially um, you could potentially kill a player's confidence. I suppose at this point in his career. Mm. I mean, we've seen it before, haven't we, where the manager has played young players and you look at them and you think, wow, that guy is just not anywhere near ready. And they gain a reputation for being, you know, crap or whatever. Uh, And it is just a case of not being ready. And then a couple of years later, you know, there's a different player. Um, Mm. So I I don't know if that's going to happen yet with Sonogo, but, you know, by the same token, I think uh, I'm very glad that we've we brought in Welbeck. Interesting that he, he spoke about him developing as a player and certain players that have arrived at Arsenal at his age at 23 and and gone on, as, as Wenger said, to have huge careers. Um, he found himself a little bit shunted to the sidelines because of uh, the guy we spoke about uh, who might have left us and gone there. Um, and Rooney, of course, playing as a, a central striker. I mean, he has now, with, with Giroud out and with Sonogo just not really a convincing option uh, although he's got Alexis for a bit of competition as a, the central striking role with Giroud out until January he's got four months basically to establish himself as as the team's first team striker it's a huge opportunity for him as well yeah it is and um and the the stuff that we've been hearing about the last 24 hours about it being a, a permanent deal and not a loan um i mean that that kind of suggests that he's got you know he, he is motivated to, to 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 make it really work and to to have something to build on I, i'd expect maybe he has other motivations but um but yeah, absolutely. It's um, I mean, he's coming into a team. As we said, there is uncertainty about how um, we're going to line up and how we're going to play. And in, in a way, that's probably nice for players. Um, like when, when it when things are kind of rigid and and, and fixed, um, it can be. Uh, I, I suppose it can it can kind of close. Um, 
closed doors. Whereas, yeah, if, if, if it's you know, if you have that opportunity to, um, to to win win a position for yourself, then then that's a huge motivation. And um, and yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, we just don't come to rely on him as much as we did with with Giroud last season and, mm. and play him into the ground. So. Um, yeah, we'll have to see how that pans out. Manchester City then tomorrow, and everybody before this game seems to be talking about the the six three game at at their place. Whereas I think our record against them at home is really quite good. Um, over the last few years, we've won a couple, and uh, I don't think they've won. Maybe there was there was that crazy game when Koscielny got sent off, wasn't it in the in the first few League minutes? But, yeah, but generally speaking, we've been we've been pretty good against them at home. Um, do, mm. do you think the Community Shield? Um, I, I don't. I know it's not necessarily a guide uh, by which you can decide who's going to win the title and which is a better team by any means, but in a way might have broken a little bit of a psychological barrier ahead of this particular game, given that the emphasis has been on our inability to get big results against the, the, the bigger teams in the, in this league. Perhaps. Yeah. I, 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 I half think city was so bad that day. They might, they might've actually have, have um, done themselves a favor by just not making it seem like a remotely competitive fixture. But they, they were, they were that bad against Stoke as well. A couple of weeks ago, they were bad. Hmm. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and yeah, perhaps um, it's uh, you'd certainly like to think so. But and of course, uh, you know, as you're alluding to, like our, our big our big game problems were were predominantly away from home um, last season and and, and arguing seasons before that as well. Um, so so you'd you'd expect that wouldn't be you know uh, a big psychological problem. I mean, perhaps. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So the psychological challenge is exactly that: is is when a team goes to um, goes to Anfield, um, Stamford Bridge, etc., etc., um, and, and and then has to sort of confront those demons, if you like. But but again, perhaps having new players, having fresh players in the squad, um, and of course winning the FA Cup in in the interim um, helps get over that psychological um, issue. There, there is also we'll have to see what what Wenger what, what Wenger does with his tactics. That we were talking about earlier, but I mean, there is this idea that, that he's changed the system to, to give us a, a bit more of a, um, a, a better, a, a sort of stronger approach in those tough games, yeah. um, so that when you go away to, to Man City, for example, you've, you've got three men in midfield who can, um, yeah, who, who can sit there and can um, protect you a little bit better. Although I seem to think. We were lit lined up a tad like that when we went to to City last year. Now, so I'm just destroying my point mid sentence. But, um, but but yeah, perhaps, perhaps that's the case. But we've got um, yeah, it's it's still early in the season as well, and I, I wouldn't think there's uh, you know there'd be too much psychological doubt in our in our players' minds ahead of Saturday. Is it a is it a must win or, or a must not lose? I think it's more a must not lose. 
Um, I, I think at this stage of the season, I mean, we could do with more points. Leicester is disappointing, of course, um, but it, it's it's still very early. Um, I'm I'm a big fan early in the season of not losing. I know sometimes it can go the other way, um, and with, with Villa last season, sometimes it can it could give you an early um, kind of kick up the arse. But um, but I, I think also teams get confidence from not losing games when when you get, especially when you're not playing that great as as we're seeing now like often yeah, you can almost play yourself into better form by not losing play and sometimes you get players saying well we're on an unbeaten stretch um so I, i'd say it's, it's it's more that kind of case all right okay look we better leave it there but uh we'll catch up with you again uh, in the near future julian h from gingers for limpar thank you very much great stuff thank you Thank you indeed to Gingers for Limpar. You can find him on Twitter, of course, at Gingers for Limpar. That's at Gingers for Limpar, where the four is a number four. Right, what we're going to do is take a, a very short commercial break, and we're going to be right back with our second guest of this week's show. Get on down to Archie's Sheet Metal Works Tottenham. Anything you want, we can make it. Gates and railings. Food drawers, charcoal grills, domestic and commercial kitchens, even toe caps for your Doc Martens. Archie's Sheet Metal Works Tottenham, the one right beside the stadium. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Arscast. Time for our second guest of the show. And with me, an author, Stuart Taylor, who's written a book about an Arsenal player whose career started incredibly and ended tragically. Uh, the player in question is Paul Vasson. The book is called Stuck in a Moment, The Ballad of Paul Vasson. And Stuart Taylor, the author, is with me now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for asking me. There are probably a number, well, a number, there are probably people out there right now who don't have any clue who Paul Vasson was, uh, given that what he did uh, happened over a very short period of time and obviously quite a long time ago. Can you give us a little bit of background about who he was? Yeah, Paul, Paul joined Arsenal in the mid-70s and he worked his way through the youth ranks and the reserve ranks pretty rapidly and he became effectively the understudy for Frank Stapleton and Alan Sunderland towards the end of the 70s and into the early 80s. Um, his, his best season was the 79-80 season when he actually got a run of games and he scored a, uh, a winner at White Hart Lane in a league match. And then a few days later, he had his his big moment when he came on as a substitute and scored the winning goal at Juventus in the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final. I mean, set the scene there for us a little bit. Arsenal were on the verge of going out. Um, yeah, the, the the first leg had been a quite an attritional affair. The Italians had, were playing like Italians <laughs> did. Very, very defensive. Um, going full into tackles, it was quite a quite a nasty game. Um, the, the Juventus got a penalty and went ahead, but um, Arsenal managed to grab an equaliser uh, towards the end for uh, Roberto Bettiger own goal. So it was stood, it stood at one one. The Juventus had the away goal, and not many people, to be honest, were giving Arsenal much of a chance. All right, so he's 19 years of age and um, Arsenal are playing in Italy against Juventus, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And Italian football back then was pretty much the creme de la creme of, of European football. I mean, what did that goal do for him in terms of his profile uh, at such a young age? Well, it shot him literally onto the front pages of newspapers across Europe. And for... A week or so, Paul Vasson was was you could say world famous. Mm. He's um, he, he up till then he nobody knew of him unless you lived in Bermondsey or were an ardent Arsenal fan. So here we go. The expectations suddenly shoots up because here's someone not many players have seen before coming on, scoring away at Juventus, doing something nobody's done before. 
and all of a sudden here's here's our new find. This is um this is our new hero. Yeah. And um he he ultimately found it difficult to live up to that. I mean, do do you think that was <sighs> I mean, it's such a brilliant thing to happen, and, and I don't suppose you'd ever want to yeah. take that away from a player. But did it raise expectations to the point where people were were looking at him to do things he wasn't quite capable of at that stage of his career? Yes, definitely, because although an injury interceded, um, if you jumped uh, a year down the line, he was getting hammered by the fans for his... Um, apparent inability and it was at a time when the Arsenal crowd was already fed up with the fact that Brady had been allowed to go then Stapleton had been allowed to go and here was this young kid who couldn't do the things that Stapleton had done and the Arsenal crowd at at that time around 81-82 when we we couldn't score a goal at Highbury to save ourselves Mm. was pretty unforgiving. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in the book where you talk about how he's come back, and we'll touch on the injury in a moment. Um, yeah. But he's come back, and I think it was a UEFA Cup game. And That's there's, right, Winterslag. There's a guy on the terraces shouting, Vassanoff, Vassanoff. And, uh, That's right. Paul's brother is there on the terraces who knows what he's been through from an injury point of view and how hard he's worked, and these guys are, are giving him all this grief. And it ends up with him fighting fans around him on the north bank yeah, that's right. fighting his corner i mean it's it's a remarkable yeah. it's a remarkable and sad story really that that it would come to that um i mean these days we know what a player goes through when they get injured because of wall-to-wall media and, and blogs and news sites and twitter and everything else that uh, i'm involved in we know everything yeah. all the details i mean do you think there was at that time perhaps a lack of uh, a lack of understanding about how serious what had happened to him was I think definitely because he he actually went through a lot of his rehabilitation on his own. He was actually away from the the club for quite a while, and he was he was doing a lot of rehab with his with his brother in the park. Um, and I, I think that I think the difference between then and now is players get more protection. If you, if 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 it happened today, I think with the injuries that he got, his, his knee was literally effectively shredded. He would have been protected more, I think, by Arsene Wenger. He would have ruled him out for a year. He would have let him recuperate slowly, like he's he's done with with countless players. Mm. And I think. Um, I think Arsenal probably rushed him, not rushed him, but brought him back maybe a bit too quickly when his his skill was compromised by his by his injuries, his lack of ability to twist and turn and make sharp movements. Yeah, the the injury itself it happened in a, a game against Tottenham. That's right. I mean, from from what you say in the book. Um, he he did his cartilage, his ligaments, his cruciate, everything in yeah. his knee went, and this was at a time when there were no such things as scans. Um, you know, you talk yeah. about the, the consultant coming in and he's lying on the on the table and he puts a thumb on the side of his knee and it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, your knee is fucked basically. Um, but but you know, there isn't um, or wasn't the understanding of, of, of these kind of injuries back then uh, and the chances of no, him recovering I think, from I think it. When you, when you look, sorry, go on. No, I'm just saying the chances of him recovering from an injury like that, which even today would be a challenge for, for the best surgeons with all the technology and all the advancements in, yeah. in medicine and scans, it would be a challenge to, to bring a player back. For him to, yeah. to undergo that kind of injury um, was always going to be hugely detrimental. Yeah, and I think going back to your point about communication, I've looked back in the the programmes at the time and there's no sort of update that you you get now on the players in the on on the website or in the the match day programme. It's almost like he wasn't not not just him, I think it was any anyone that was injured, especially long term. They weren't forgotten about, but it was um 
you know, the, the play, we weren't fed regular updates, and I think we, we didn't know how seriously injured he was. I mean, even he didn't seem to quite understand how seriously no. injured he was because I know it was a different time and a different culture and, and the story about Raphael Meade coming in to give him a, a six-pack of special brew in hospital <laughs> I think kind of sums that up but even even to the point where he was so desperate and so working so hard to get back for Arsenal that that his attitude was like fuck the doctors what do they know um, yeah. And he was going to, he, he went to the park and he did these exercises, which I'm sure he did hoping or with with the best faith that they would be good for him. But nowadays you would say, yeah. look, there's a point where you need to rest and then slowly, slowly. So it's, it's yeah. a, very much a victim of the time. Yeah, definitely. I think he, um, I think he, he was determined he he was very determined to, that he was going to get back in the first team, and he, like you say, his attitude was that he, he he just wasn't listening to the doctors, the consultants. He went to he even went over to America to speak to the specialists there, and they, he didn't really listen to what they they told him to do. So he, he's probably ended up doing more damage to himself than. Than you know, doing extra damage to himself. So yeah, yeah I think he's he's, he's definitely um, probably could have listened a bit more. Ultimately, that put paid to his footballing career. That injury yeah. and the problems with his knee. And it's a difficult thing, you know, I think for anybody who loves football and who loves playing football, regardless of the level you play it at, when you have an injury that prevents you from doing the thing you love, it's a very difficult thing to cope with. But when it's at the the top, top level of the game, well, maybe Arsenal were going top, top level back then, but, you know, this is <laughs> professional football. It's a big, big gap to fill. And unfortunately, his life yeah. after football took a very dark turn. Yeah, I mean, he... He um, he's not obviously the first one that's that's faced these problems, and he won't be the last. And but what what he's Paul was quite bitter towards Arsenal because he felt that they'd left him unprepared basically for life mm. after football. The, the phrase I've used is that he was that he'd been sort of seduced and abandoned. And it's, it's a difficult one because Arsenal did, you have to say, they did spend two years trying to get him right and giving him three operations and still paying his wages, etc. But there obviously came a point where they they had to say that this is not going to work and Paul had to had to find something else to do. And I think he just he just it's incredibly difficult without any any other um, meaning in life. Mm. I think that's that's probably what he was spending the rest of his life trying to find. And it wasn't until he found God much later on that I think he, he did find something. But even then, that was just a, a passing phase. But um, I think, you know, players, even today, we... You know, we hear of clubs taking kids on when they're eight and nine years old and they're telling them they're going to be stars and they're going to do this and that and 99% of them don't make it. Yeah. So you've got those young kids that are rejected. You've got people who retire early and you've even got the people who retire after a full, full career. You know, there's only so many jobs in coaching and in um, working on TV. Um, and if you don't go into those fields, you've got to find something else. And it's usually something a lot more mundane than what you've been doing. Do you think that, that perhaps there is, when we talked about that desire of his to get back and playing, that was almost self-destructive because of... Um, yes, I think so, because... You know, that that, that Paul, was a personality trait that, that sadly he took on then. Yes, because I think Paul, Paul was his, his brother mentions in the book a couple of times, was all or nothing. He was 100% or 0%. Mm. And I think he went from being, being 100% football to 0% football because he stopped watching games. He was offered the chance to go and coach 
kids in Malta, and he had other similar offers, and he turned them flat down because he didn't want anything to do with football anymore. So I think his his mindset did um, didn't help him much. Mm. Um, as I say, he was just sort of an all or nothing type of type of um, character, which unfortunately I am as well. It's one of the things we got in common. Yeah, it ended. Um in August 2001 for Paul uh, after a long struggle with drugs and with alcohol. Yeah. And when you see a story like that, a guy who at 19 looked like he had the world at his feet uh, and so many years later um, has nothing, um, it does yeah. show you what, how fickle the game the game of football is. But in writing this book, have you been able to... I know that you've, you've um, spoken with his family a great deal. Yeah. Is there something good that can come out of the story? Particularly for his mother, I think, that she doesn't seem to have, until quite recently, come to terms with what's happened or with what happened to him. No, and one of the things that she's mentioned to me about the book is that it has helped her do that. The same with um, Paul's brother, Lee, as well, who's never really got around to to dealing with it himself. And I think, I'm hoping it's given them some form of, of closure not not closure might not be the right word because yeah. it sounds like you're not going to think about it anymore and of course I think about him every day but um I think um I think really hello hi yeah no I'm listening yeah oh sorry 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 um I think really the other thing is is that it helped it's helped Maureen in that her son is being talked about again. And she felt like Paul, that he'd been forgotten a bit by the football community. Um, and bringing him back into the forefront with with this book and having the book launched for Arsenal, etc., and having some ex-players there has made her feel quite quite good that Paul's not been forgotten. Well, that's good. I mean, it's obviously a a sad story, but if ultimately it has a a positive effect on her and the rest of his family, then then that's a good thing. The the book is called Stuck in a Moment, The Ballad of Paul Vassen by Stuart Taylor, uh, published by GCR Books. Uh, Stuart, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks to uh, Stuart and also thanks to GCR Books who have given me three copies of Stuck in a Moment, The Ballad of Paul Vassen to give away to you. All you have to do if you would like to win one is answer this very, very simple question. Against whom did Paul Vassen score that goal in Europe to put Arsenal into the final of the Cup Winners' Cup? Who did he score against uh, the goal that made him famous? All you have to do is send your answer to competition at arsblog.com. That's competition at arsblog.com. The random number number generator will pick three winners and i'll announce those on next week's arsecast so now all we have to do is look ahead to the game tomorrow against manchester city and after the interlal we've obviously got to get back into the swing of things injury news and team news is quite good we've got Mikel Arteta back after his sprained ankle. Mesut Ozil is in the squad, despite some worries that he might not make it. Uh, he went away with Germany for the interlal and didn't play at all. So I was a little bit worried that he might have been a bit more injured after doing his ankle at Leicester. He's back in the team. Kieran Gibbs is back in the squad. Lauren Koscielny is back in. David Ospina, the goalkeeper, he's fit. So we're kind of operating almost at full tilt here. Um, there is a worry, though, about Aaron Ramsey after he turned his ankle on that pitch in Andorra uh, for Wales the other night. So that's a bit of a worry. He might miss out, and that would be a blow, obviously, given the, the influence that he has on this team. Even when he doesn't play well, he, um, he's he got the ability to pop up and, and get us a goal. But in general terms, it does look as if we're, you know, as healthy as we have been for for quite some time. Uh, It'll be interesting to see the team that the manager picks. He's got Ozil, he's got Cazorla, he's got Alexis, he's got Oxlade-Chamberlain, he's got Wilshire. Um, We've got new boy Danny Welbeck, who has to start. In my opinion, he's got to start uh, on Saturday. After his two goals in midweek, he is the best candidate that we've got. We've just spent 17 or 18 million pounds on him. Let's play him as a striker, even though Arsene Wenger did what he normally does, is say, yes, his best position is a striker, but of course He's a versatile player, but I think if you were to go back and look at the Arsenal.com records and check, every 
signing that he makes, he might, you know, he might say, yes, he's a versatile player. Apart from Shamak, maybe, and Park. I doubt he said that about them. But Welbeck, I think, will start up front. And with the likes of Ozil and Cazorla and Alexis in and around him and behind him, we shouldn't be found wanting from an attacking point of view. The first month of the season was functional, I think you might say. We've got through it. We did kind of what we had to do, even if Leicester, you look back on that, as as dropped points. But we won at home against Palace. We got through to the Champions League. We got a draw away against Everton. Had to dig deep to do that. And we know that the, the World Cup and the preseason wasn't ideal. But here we are now in September. It's mid-September. Blimey, it's mid-September already. Well, the, yeah, heading towards mid-September. And uh, we should be fully fit, match fit and sharp and this is a team now that really has to start clicking even if there are some decisions that the manager has to make. So um, that's just about that. Let's keep everything crossed. I hope to see uh, some of you in the usual place on Saturday. I'm over for the game. Looking forward to it. Uh, looking forward to watching us win, of course. Um, so we'll uh, we'll leave it there for this week. We'll be here on Monday, myself and James with an Arscast Extra looking back on what happened at the weekend. Uh, so until then, take it easy. Have a great weekend. Uh, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Yes, Ivan. It's it's Daniel here, Daniel Levy. Yes, how are you? <laughs> Delighted to hear that. Delighted. This laughter isn't at all fake to butter you up. Anyway, look, we've been having a few problems. I don't know if you've noticed on the news, but with our new stadium. Yeah. Yeah. It is a bit. <laughs> yeah. But look, I just wanted maybe to sit down and... Maybe we could have a chat about uh, a solution that we could find uh, between us. You know, you've got a lovely big ground there, and we, well, don't. So maybe I can um, take you to lunch. Is there anywhere anywhere in particular you'd like to go? I mean, it's on me, of course. What's the name again? It's a French restaurant, is it? No chance. Sounds great. And the uh, the address? What is it? 1961... Farkov Road, great. And uh, just in case I get there a bit early, is there anything uh, on the menu that you'd recommend? The Up the Garden Path Salad. Sounds delicious, actually. Oh, very good, Ivan. Very good indeed. Norma, Norma, can you get me David Gold's number? Thanks. 